Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Incident at Devil's Den, a true story by Terry Lovelace, Esquire. So who is Terry Lovelace, you may ask? Terry was born in St. Louis, Missouri, where he grew up. He belonged to a middle-class family. He was the youngest of three children and the only son. His family didn't have the money to send him to college after high school, so he enlisted in the Air Force. Upon enlisting in the Air Force, he was trained to be a paramedic, and he served his six-year enlistment at Whiteman Air Force Base located in Missouri. He went to college after the Air Force. He went to law school, passed his bar exam, and became a really successful lawyer. Terry was married. He married young. He was still in the service when he married his wife, Sheila. They've been together for more than 40 years. While Terry served in the Air Force, he was a medic, and he was really an amateur, a very good amateur photographer, and he particularly liked photographing the night sky and nature, birds. He found out about Ansel Adams at a library on base, and he was enthralled. He wanted to be like Ansel Adams. Terry also had a dark room in his house, and he said that this was really a very inexpensive hobby back in the 70s. And it was something that he really enjoyed doing. And that's kind of who Terry was up to this point. He was only 22, 20, he was only in his early 20s when the incident at Devil's Den happened. He and Sheila hadn't even had any other children yet. So it kind of gives you a timeline how young he really was. Now the incident that happened at Devil's Den was not anything Terry ever planned on coming out with. He actually planned on keeping this to himself. His children never even knew that these things happened to him. The children kind of knew that, you know, sometimes dad had bad dreams, don't we all? But they really didn't know anything more than that. And Terry and Sheila, Sheila was aware of Terry's incidents. They wanted to keep it that way. They wanted to keep it secret. And kind of one of the reasons why is to protect the kids so they wouldn't be picked on with this or have some kind of stigma. 
And also Terry had a lot to lose. Being the lawyer that he was, he'd be ostracized. Uh, he might lose his job. And he didn't want that, of course. He had a lot riding on this to keep quiet. And he did keep quiet up until 2012 when he had an injury. It wasn't an injury. It was more... He woke up in the morning and he couldn't put weight on his leg. And he went he went to the doctor and was ordered to have some x-rays done on the leg to, so they could find out what it was. And these x-rays came back showing anomalies in Terry's legs. There were interesting artifacts in Terry's leg that couldn't be explained. One was the density of bone embedded inside his thigh muscles. And the other one, um, I'm sorry, I think it was in, embedded in his calf muscles. And the other anomaly was, was strange wires running alongside the bone in his leg. And the third thing was that the doctors could see or find no spot on his skin where anything was inserted. And that wasn't possible. Terry's incident started when he was just a little guy. As a small child, he would see monkey men that would come into his room. They'd come at night, and they would wear masks. They were grinning masks. And they would tell Terry, Come play with us, Terry. We'll have fun. But he was really terrified of them. The masks were all the same, and they creeped him out. And there were always four of the monkey men. Terry was afraid that they were going to take him and they wouldn't bring him back. He was most afraid that he would never return. And he had nightmares and screaming fits after the nightmares that impacted his whole family. He would wake them all up at night with his violent nightmares. He was just little and his dad came in and put tape on the windows and he told Terry this is monkey men tape this will keep the monkey men out seemingly at work Terry stopped having nightmares but the incidents didn't stop despite the monkey tape and Terry knew it was just tape it was just weather strip he wasn't dumb even as a small guy at eight Terry saw another flying saucer it's actually Maybe his first flying saucer he was aware of. He had been playing in his backyard. He had a bow and arrow set. Back in the early 60s, it wasn't unheard of to give your kids weapons for toys. And Terry was in the backyard archery shooting when he saw a peculiar shadow cross the backyard. And being curious, he looked up and there was a spaceship. It was silver and shiny, and Terry just lay down in the grass and watched it. And it didn't stay long. It was only a few minutes. And then it just kind of wobbled a little bit, tilted, and seemed to avoid like the power lines, and it shot off at an amazing rate of speed. And after it shot off, Terry got up and started screaming, Mom, did you see it? Did you see it? Did you see it? Mom! Well, his mother came out the door, worried maybe he shot somebody with his bow and arrow, possibly lamed in a neighbor cat or something. She ushered him into the house and said to be quiet. And when her husband and Terry's two sisters came home, she shared the incident with them. And Dad was not a happy man about hearing his son seeing spaceships, or flying saucers, as it was. Dad believed that it was all Russian nonsense. And he told Terry, I don't know what you saw, but you did not see a flying saucer. Soon after the sighting, the nightmares began again for Terry. The nightmares were about lights in the sky, and shadows in the house watching. And then the shadows would grab and take him. And the next memory would be of a tall, bug-like being 
Gray, with a lab coat on, who examined him and performed procedures on a surgical table. These were often really painful procedures. The nightmares started in earnest again and were very bad, and his parents were worried about their son. So it was time that they, that they took him to the doctor, and the doctor tricked Terry into confiding his story, and the doctor told Terry that nothing in the sky could hurt you. And at this point, Terry felt tricked and betrayed by his parents and adults alike. He wasn't the one had who had lied. He knew what he saw was not a jet, but he was being forced to lie about it. And the doctor insisted he had an overactive imagination and his shows were taken away because the doctor said these were the cause of his terror. And to my knowledge, nobody's ever been terrified from a few episodes of Space Ghost. And Terry felt betrayed, and I think rightfully so. Terry wasn't the liar, but they wanted him to be. They wanted him to lie about what he saw. And it was then that he kind of realized he had to keep these things to himself. When Terry was 11, he had another incident that happened. He woke up in the middle of the, of the night. It was a winter night. It was really cold outside. But the lights were coming into his bedroom window. They were flashing. They were really bright. They were green and yellow lights. And he could feel a vibration in the air. His plane, a toy airplane, had been on the side table of his bed on the night table and it was vibrating so badly in the room that the plane fell on the floor so curiosity got the best of him and Terry got up and walked to the window he took a piece of the corner of the curtain and tucked it into a corner of the blind as he peeked out and oh my gosh it was a flying saucer again all these bright lights were a flying saucer but this time it was right outside his window, and he could see the top. It was just like the one he'd seen three years earlier, but this time he could see the top. And on the top, there was a dome, and the dome is where all the lights were coming from. And he thought it was really cool. He wasn't afraid. And then suddenly, he actually was just disinterested. He returned to his bed, leaving the curtain tucked into the blind and leaving the airplane on the floor. And he crawled into bed and he went right back to sleep. He was just out. In the morning, he knew it was real because laying on the floor was the jet airplane toy where it had landed. And he looked over at the window and the curtain was still tucked neatly into the blind where he had left it the night before. So for Terry, this was validation that these things were real. They weren't imagined, but he'd learned his lesson and he told no one. When he went down to breakfast, he simply asked his family, Hey, did anyone see those lights last night? Well, no one had. They'd slept through it. Terry just said, Yeah, must have been like fire trucks or something. And that was kind of the end of it. And from then on, Terry really didn't tell his family about his encounters. He kept them to himself because... It didn't get him anywhere to actually tell them. And this is kind of where Terry learned to keep quiet. And he did. The next incident that Terry had, he was already in the Air Force. He was on duty. He ran with the ambulance service at the base at Whiteman Air Force Base. And his partner, Toby, was with him when this happened. So we're going to get into who Toby was a little bit. And Toby, or Tobias, is what Terry refers to his friend. And it's not his real name. This is to keep t Toby's family protected. He, he, he didn't get permission to use it, so he decided not to, so they would be protected. 
So Toby grew up in Flint, Michigan, and he was a city boy. He was brilliant. He had been taking classes while he was serving in the Air Force, and he took classes like physics classes and aced them. And he was a math whiz. He basically went into the service for the same reasons that Terry did. Using the GI Bill, he'd be able to go to college after his six-year enlistment was up. And Terry said that Toby had planned to be either an astronomer or perhaps an astrophysicist. Neither way, Toby was definitely smart enough to accomplish that. And in the meantime, while serving in the Air Force, he was an amateur astronomer. He knew the night sky. He knew the stars and the constellations. In the early 70s, mid-70s, there weren't really that many satellites up there. It was definitely nothing like it is today. And Toby knew the satellites. He knew their paths. He knew where to find them, what they looked like. So he was really just a smart guy. And he was with Terry on this next incident that happened. It was at Kilo 5 at it at wait I'm sorry it was at Kilo 5 at Whiteman Air Force Base they had gotten a call out for an injury at Kilo 5 which was a missile silo and the missiles are about 60 feet long and the silos themselves were about 75 feet and they were ladders that would go up and down these shafts and the air more airman that had been inside had fallen off the ladder and they didn't really know what kind of injury but the they knew that he was conscious and alert. So they gave their ETA, which was their estimated time of arrival, and they went out to the silo. Only when they started approaching it, there were lights in the sky. And these are not like the spaceships that Terry had seen or the flying saucers and the lights that Terry had seen. These were reflections off of clouds, and they were like orange lights or red lights. They flashed, and when they got to the gate of Kilo 5, there was a captain who directed them to pull over and stay there. And in front of the gate were four airmen. They were guarding the gate with uh, weapons, and there was going to be no admittance. And there was definitely something going on because there were security officers everywhere, and there were vehicles, security vehicles everywhere. And Terry and Toby looked at themselves and they were like, hmm, is there some kind of exercise going on? It was really weird. Well, Terry was the driver. He parked the ambulance. And immediately Toby was like, hey, man, I'm going to go find out what's going on here. And he hopped out of the ambulance, despite the fact they were ordered to stay put. Terry sat and he just waited in the ambulance. It was a few minutes later. Toby returns and he's like, man, you got to come and see this. And he uses an expletive here and I'm not going to repeat it. So Terry had to come out and see what was going on because you are not going to believe this, Terry. And they, Terry grabbed his parka and hopped out of the ambulance and they were actually standing with the captain who had ordered them put and looked up and above Kilo 5 was a tri I'm sorry a diamond shaped black UFO just hovering right above the missile and it just sat there and it had apparently had been sitting there for a while by the time Terry had noticed it too it had been brought out to see it they sat and they 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 didn't sit they were standing it was cold out they stood and they just watched this thing for about 10 minutes, Terry guessed. And it just sat there and just sat there. And it was like almost something hanging from a string, but you could see no strings. And then suddenly it just shot off out into nowhere. And it was just an amazing sight. Two years after the Kilo 5 sighting, Terry and Toby were on duty. And Toby was sitting outside of the duty station when he happened to notice some white lights, bright lights, transversing the night sky. And as already I told you, he was pretty much an expert. He, he knew the stars, the constellations, the satellites. He knew what should be up there, 
what shouldn't be. And this definitely wasn't a jet, and it wasn't stars, it wasn't planets, it wasn't anything that should be there, and it was not a satellite. He called Terry out to take a peek. So Terry did, he came out and took a look. Yeah, he didn't know what it was either, of course, and Terry asked Toby, and Toby didn't know what it was, so didn't have an answer. But it made Terry uneasy, and he told Toby, hey man, let's get back inside, you know, because they were actually working and doing things, so they went back into the building, and Terry forgot about it. Skipping ahead many years after Terry and Sheila had been married a while and had a couple kids. He was already out of the Air Force and he was practicing his law. He had a motorcycle incident that happened. Well, by this time he'd moved on from photography to motorcycles. And on the weekends, Terry would take his motorcycle out for a long ride. He'd go a couple hours. He'd go early in the morning. And this was nice because he would get out, have some me time, have some fun on his motorbike while his family got to sleep in a little bit. And then when Terry would return, he would make them a big late breakfast. So it was just nice for everybody. Oh, one morning, uh, Terry was always back. I should point out, he was always back by a certain time. He was always back no later than like 10 or 10.30s, maybe 11 depending on traffic. Sometimes he would get in traffic and he'd run a little late, but never later than that. That would be the absolute latest. And this particular morning, he went out for his ride, went his regular route, and he had a regular route. He knew the distance. He knew, you know, he, he knew the way to go. He would just go for a ride. He came back in and Sheila's a mess when he comes back and he's like, what is wrong? she is a mess. She's like literally called the police to find Terry. She's called the hospitals to see if there was an accident. She's worried out of her mind. And Terry's like, are you nuts? What? Well, somehow Terry lost a couple hours of time. And he has no explanation for it. He simply went on his ride. And it was a route he was very familiar with. And he should have been home no later than 11. He figured even earlier than that. But yet somehow, it was already almost like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So Terry lost several hours, and he had no explanation for this whatsoever. He ended up selling his bike because he didn't want anything to come between him and Sheila. And she came first, and it upset her. And he knew inherently that motorcycles could be dangerous, so he got rid of the bike. But in the meantime, Sheila asked him if He'd ever heard of the Betty and Barney Hill case. And he hadn't. He didn't have a clue who they were. And Sheila found it in a magazine. She had the magazine, so she showed him the article all about Betty and Barney Hill. And Sheila asked him, hey, do you think maybe this is what happened to you on that motorcycle ride? Because he really had no idea where all this time went. And Terry read the article. He thought it was really interesting and he just didn't know. Perhaps, maybe something happened. He didn't know. And at the same time this happened, Sheila had a weird incident. It was a strange incident that happened in the bedroom. She'd been asleep. And for whatever reason, she woke up and she saw a woman in her bedroom. The woman was wearing a long robe. She was only about four feet tall. She looked at Sheila and told her to go back to sleep. Sheila had no fear at all. Wouldn't you be freaked out? Somebody you don't even know is like just in your room. I'd be freaked out. But Sheila went right back to sleep because that's what this woman told her to do. And before she fell asleep again, she reached over and Terry was not in bed. So we don't know where Terry went with this either, but he wasn't there. During Terry's career, as a lawyer, he got one particular client who was kind of interesting, really interesting. Her name was Cheryl, and Cheryl came to see him because she was having problems with trespassers on in her yard that were 
shining lights in her window and scaring the hell out of her. It turned out that these trespassers were of an alien sort. Since as a lawyer, Terry really couldn't help her with alien trespassers, although in the back of his mind he thought he could relate, he told her to grab a camera and, you know, take some pictures, Cheryl. Next time they arrive, take some pictures. And he sent her off on her way because legally there's really nothing he could do to help her. He didn't think he'd hear back from her. And a month later, a month or so later, she actually calls the office and his assistant says, Hey, Terry, we got a call from a Cheryl. She said she talked to you a few weeks ago. So Terry picks up the call and Cheryl's like, Hey, I got pictures. I got pictures of the aliens and I got pictures of a spacecraft. So Terry was like really intrigued and he said, Hey, bring them in. So they set up an appointment time and Cheryl brought the pictures and the negatives in and gave them to Terry. And there was one in particular that was interesting. For the most part, the pictures were nothing. They were like kids on railroad tracks walking to school. They weren't aliens. They weren't trespassing, actually, either. So, But there was one in interesting picture, and Cheryl had said that's their spaceship. And it was of these lights that were moving up off the tracks, the railroad tracks that were behind her backyard. And so Terry asked if he could keep the picture negative and show it to some experts to find out what the heck that was and to find out what their next step should be. And the expert that he found on trains looked at it and said for it, it could not have been a train. The lights and the configurations were all wrong. The lights on the trains point downwards towards the track so you could see in front of you. And these lights were to the sides and up and it also seemed to be having motion to it. It wasn't going side to side. It was going straight up and down. And the motion was completely wrong for a train. Trains do not go up and down. So was this a helicopter? And it was decided this wasn't any kind of helicopter either. And the lights for it were all wrong for a helicopter. So what was it? The expert didn't know. Although the expert had an idea because he himself, in his younger years on the railroad had had an experience in um, New Mexico and it was with with something that looked just like this with the light patterns and everything and it was a UFO sighting he had so he wouldn't go out and say hey that th this is a UFO but he knew that it was not a train he knew what it was not he knew that it was not a helicopter either and it appeared to be the same thing he'd witnessed when he was a much younger man. And then this odd thing happened much later. It was in 1987. Terry, Terry and Sheila were shopping. They were doing some Christmas shopping for their kids. And they were at a mall, a local mall, and it had a Barnes and, I'm sorry, <laughs> had a big store like a chain store chain bookstore there at the mall and as they're walking through the, the mall they go by the bookstore and out in the display area is a book by Whitley Stryber called communion and the jacket and the book are sitting right there for all to see when Terry walks by he sees this alien faced creature it's your typical gray with the big black eyes on the cover of this book and Terry just shuts down. He just freaks out. He can't breathe. He's instantly having a panic attack. And he has to leave. He has to get out of there. Get away from that picture. He's just freaking out. And Sheila was like, man, what is wrong with you? After Terry calmed down some, they went and had a cup of coffee. And Sheila's like, look, you got to get some help. You got to go see somebody because he's. this isn't the only incident he's had. This is the last one where she's like, look, you got to get some help because he goes to the store and he sees a mannequin and he freaks out. Like normal people don't go to a store and see a mannequin and be like all wigged out over this. You know, it's just a mannequin. But for Terry, it triggered something deep inside him and he would have panic attacks. So Terry agreed he'd go see somebody to seek some help. And he went to see a psychiatrist by the name of Beth. 
and Beth did a battery of tests on Terry. And the tests are pretty normal. They do it to everybody when they go in. And basically it came back that Terry's not crazy. Terry's normal. But what the test found was he is suffering from PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Something happened to him at some point where he's freaking out over these seemingly, I don't know what the word is for these, they're not scary, you know, for these, for, for nothing. He's just freaking out. Something's triggering him and it's really nothing that should be that frightening, but he's scared out of his mind. So Terry went only three sessions with Beth. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't talk about these things and he slipped up and he started telling her about the incident that happened in 1977. And it was almost like he'd been programmed not to seek answers because once this slipped out, he, he had to get out. He had to, he had to get out of there. He went home. He told Sheila, oh, I learned some relaxation techniques and it's going to be fine. And I'm not, I don't have to go back. And, and, and it kind of was a lie. It was a lie because there were more appointments set up, but Terry just couldn't do it. In his mind, he dodged a big one by not going back to Beth. And all of this is stemmed, he's suspected, from 1977. And he, as I had said, he wasn't going to do anything at all about these incidents. He had decided to protect his family, to protect his career, it was best to keep silent. And he had planned on staying silent until he had gone to the doctor in 2012 and ended up that he had a baker cyst that had nothing to do with these implants that were in his legs. But when he discovered that these creatures he's had encounters with for his, basically his entire life put something in his body, that that had been enough for him decided right there and then he was coming out with this he was telling his story and they weren't going to get away with this he wasn't going to be the silent victim so he believes that the implants were put in his legs roughly in around in 1977 when the incident at devil's den happened so i think it's time we talk about devil's den 19, early 1977 in the winter, Toby approaches Terry and says, Hey man, let's go camping. Now, they were both city boys. And Terry's like, Hell no, man. We're city boys. We don't know the first thing about camping. And Toby convinced him that would be a good idea. Toby said to him, Hey, you're into photography? We can go out somewhere. There's not a lot of light pollution. You can take photos of the sky and the moon. You can get some really good nature shots. You can practice being Ansel Adams. You know, and this is like, this is what Terry wanted, you know. So, yeah, Terry's like, yeah, man, that does sound like a good idea. But you didn't think maybe the wives wouldn't be appreciative of it. Maybe the wives wouldn't appreciate going camping. And Terry's like, Toby was like, Nah, we're not going to take the wives. It's just going to be us. We'll do the initial camping. And if we like it, we'll start taking our wives. It'll be a thing we do. So then Terry and Toby talked to their wives about it. The wives were fine. They were like, yeah, hey, go have fun. It was just going to be Terry and Toby. Wives were going to stay at home this time. And again, Terry and Toby had no idea what camping was like. They'd never done it. In 1977, you couldn't get on the internet to get information. So the guys looked things up in the libraries. They talked to people who went camping. They took notes. They made lists. And they really researched camping and what to do. And they made sure that they made lists. I mean, I mean after all, these, these guys were medics. They would take care of an ambulance on a daily basis. They would make sure they had everything they needed on that ambulance to be a functioning ambulance and have everything there in case of an emergency. That's not an easy job. There's a lot of things you need for the ambulance. So they weren't fools. And they made lists. They made lists to go camping. 
Unfortunately, the list didn't matter, which will come out a bit later. They decided they were going to go camping in June of that year when they both had a long weekend. So it was a couple months away and they had time to get ready, and, and they did. On the morning that they left for Devil's Den, it was June of 1977, and Terry was the driver, picked Toby up. They went off three hours into the trip. As Devil's Den was a bit away from Whiteman Air Force Base, it was a little bit of a drive. It was maybe a six-hour drive. Halfway into the trip, Terry's like thinking in the car, going to have a good time, getting excited. They were actually obsessed about this camping trip after they both decided to go. They were obsessed. And Terry's driving along. He's like, oh my God, I forgot my camera. He's thinking about his camera and the pictures he's going to take. And he remembers he left it on the kitchen counter. And he is beside himself. The whole reason for Terry to take this trip was to do photography. You know, they're on they're on a missile base, Whiteman Air Force Base, and you don't take pictures there. So what he could do was really limited, and he was so looking forward to doing this. And he forgot his camera. He was sure he did. They pulled over. They dug around, took everything out of the car, and sure enough, the camera's not there. He had left it on the kitchen counter. And he's distraught now, and he's really upset with himself. You know, to go back, it's three hours to go home to retrieve it. And then another three hours to get just where they're sitting now. So he kind of decided that it's not the best thing to do. Best thing to do would probably just to be grown up about it and go along and try to have fun. And then maybe next time will be different. And Terry's like, yeah, man, those mountains aren't going anywhere. You're going to be able to come back here and get all kinds of good photos. So... Terry kind of had to suck it up a little bit and went on, you know. This this was something they had planned for months. So instead of turning around and going home at that point, they kept going and they arrived at Devil's Den State Park located in Arkansas. So they arrived at Devil's Den, but for whatever reason, they decided they did not want to stay at the camping area. And it was basically Toby who's like, nah, man, we want to go somewhere where all the undesirables are not. You know, the, the kids and the hippies and whatever. They wanted to go somewhere and not be bothered by people. They wanted to do their own thing. So they had a map that they had gotten from a visitor's area. And they had seen this meadow. And they're like, yeah, man, that's it. We want something that's high up. We want something, you know, like it was perfect for what they wanted. It was high up. It was a big field. There were trees all around. Nobody was there. So they went to find the meadow. And in doing so, they trespassed into federal game lands. And they went past. This wasn't like they didn't know. They did. They went past several no trespassing signs. Plus they got to a gate that was locked. But the way the lock was, it was something you could actually kind of untangle like you would a necklace that's that, that gets tangled on your neck. They untangled the chain itself and dropped it and opened the gate and then went inside this federal land area. And it was more suited for an all-terrain vehicle than a family car and it was like bumpy ride it was rough it was rough getting to this meadow but they did find it when they arrived at the meadow and they called it a meadow Terry called it a meadow it was a very large field it was a very large field on top of a bluff surrounded by trees in the middle of nowhere and it was really beautiful but when they arrived Toby insisted they needed to set up camp and he was probably absolutely right. They should have been setting up camp. But Terry's like, no, man, we have time. Let's go for a hike. We just wanted to go for a hike and check it out. Reluctantly, Toby ended up agreeing. They went for a hike. They found an area with sandstone bluffs. And it was overlooking this huge valley. And it was just beautiful. And they both sat down after the hike to, to look at the view. And they fell asleep. They both fell asleep. 
which in itself is odd. 22-year-old and Terry Toby was 23. You don't just fall asleep, but in this case, these guys did. They just fell asleep. And the next thing Terry knew, when he woke up, Toby was kicking him, going, get up, man, get up, man. And it's freaking almost dusk. We've got almost a five-mile hike through rough terrain to get back to the car so they can set up camp. And it's almost dark out already. They hustle, and they have to try to get there. They do reach the meadow, and by the time they do, it's really, it's like the gloaming. It's late. It's getting dark. There's no flashlight. To put up the tent, Toby has to turn on the headlights for the car. There's no axe to find wood to make a fire. Terry's out running around looking for twigs and brush and anything he can use to make a fire. And it's his job to make the fire and make them dinner while Toby's setting up the tent. Toby manages to get the tent up despite the fact that, you know, he has to use headlights now to do it, so it had to be rough. And Terry's got a big brush fire going, a blazing brush fire, because he can't get any wood because he forgot the axe for the wood. And he well, goes to make some food, and they didn't really bring food and drinks either. They forgot a lot of their stuff. They couldn't make beans because they didn't bring the pot. Well, heck, they didn't even bring the beans or a can opener for that matter. So they forgot a lot of things. That camera that was left behind wasn't the only thing. Despite the lists that they had, they left lots and lots of things that were important back at home. And for no reason. They weren't that inept. So Terry Burns about eight hot dogs on top of the brush fire. And Toby gets the te tent set up and they sit down and they eat. And it's a little frustrating that they forgot all these things. Maybe camping really is rocket science. And when they had discovered that they hadn't had all the things they needed there at camp, they contemplated then just going back home because, man, what are they doing? Obviously, this is harder than it looks because they're not doing real great with this. And because of how rough it was getting there, there were parts of the journey in where the roadway, if you want to call it that, it was more like a path, had led across cliff edges where you were looking down. And they didn't want to take the chance of driving back on that pathway to get home in the dark because they felt it was just too dangerous and basically they were stuck there for the night and they had to make the best of it. Best of it. So they ate their burnt hot dogs and sat back and were just watching the night sky and at least that part of the trip was good because there really was no kind of light pollution and you could see the night sky for miles. It was a really nice night, clear night, beautiful night. And they just sat back and relaxed. And Toby, the stargazer, says to Terry, Hey man, what are those lights over there? And sure enough, there are three bright lights on the horizon. So they sit and they watch them because Terry sure as heck doesn't know what they are. So if Toby doesn't know, man, they, they what are they? They're a mystery. So they're sitting there watching these lights coming. They seem to be coming towards their direction, but they're far off. Then they get start getting closer and closer. And it seems that they're three lights and they are triangular. And the closer they're getting to the position that Terry and Toby are in on top of the meadow, the more it is obvious that these are one object. They're not three. They're not any kind of stars. They're moving in the atmosphere. And they're blocking the stars behind them. And it is a triangular shaped object. And of course nothing in 1977 was a triangular shaped object. To, to this day, we don't have I we don't have things like that. Even the stealth bomber, which is triangular shape, wouldn't fly the way this thing was. It was going really slow, almost like it was floating across the sky. But it was definitely, definitely in the atmosphere. And it was approaching them. 
And they actually sat and watched this thing for a couple of hours. And it slowly drifted across the sky, transversing it until it became right above them. And it was absolutely a large triangular shape. And the closer it got, the bigger it got, and the more stars it blocked out. And they're not freaked out. I don't know how you're not freaked out because this thing they said was massive and it parked itself right above their heads about 3,000 feet up and then it just sat there and they weren't freaked out. How can you not be freaked out? And Terry said that all the wood noises stopped upon the approach of this thing. There weren't any crickets. There weren't frogs. There weren't any kind of animal noises seemed like even the wind had stopped and this thing just sat above them around 3,000 feet. Toby says, show's over. And they both pick up their air mattresses, go into the tent, and they're both sleeping before they even hit the mattress. It was about three in the morning when Terry awakens inside the tent. He's not feeling real well. There are lights flashing outside. You can see it through the walls of the tent, the thin fabric. And Toby is at the door of the tent. He's watching something. Terry starts to say something and Toby hushes him. Shh. And that's when Terry notices that there are tears running down Toby's cheeks. He's thinking, what in the world's making this man cry? He knew to Toby. And to Terry gets up and he squeezes in beside Toby to look out. And what he sees are little kids outside in the meadow. Terry says, Toby, what are little kids doing out there? Toby says, Terry, man, those aren't little kids. Those aren't human. They took us, Terry, and they hurt us. And it's then that Terry remembers that they had been taken and they were hurt. Outside the tent are a dozen or more of these gray beings walking around the meadow. There's a singular bright light from the center of the triangle, which is now only 30 feet above the meadow. And these little grays are walking into that light one or two at a time. When they reach the light, they dissolve and presumably are headed back up into the triangular spaceship. After all of them dissolve into the light and go back into the ship, the ship zips off suddenly. It's just gone. And it leaves behind terrified Toby and Terry. They're sick. They're so sick. They are thirsty. They hurt. Their whole body aches. They're itchy. It's like that expression where you feel like there are bugs crawling beneath your skin. That's how they felt. Their eyes hurt. Their eyes were swollen to the point where they were almost swollen shut. And they're burned. They're sunburned. How'd they get sunburned like this? But they're burned all over their bodies. And they have headaches. And again, they're just thirsty. They are thirstier than they've ever been in their entire lives. And they know they've got to leave. It's kind of an uns unspoken thing between them. There's only 30 feet between the tent and the car and they are so scared but they know they gotta leave and even though the tent is just fabric at least it's cover and they feel a little protected there but if they can get to the car the car has locking doors and headlights and most of all has the ability to get them the hell out of there and that's what they want they want out they want to go they want to go home they had enough Scared as they are, they run for the car, and they get in, and it's still dark out. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, it's pitch black out, and despite the fact the journey back is extremely 
treacherous. And they can't see hardly anything. There were moments where the headlights were pointing just two feet in front of the car because they're going down crevices. And then they'd shoot up on another side in the bumps and then they'd, they were flashing the sky with their headlights. They could hardly see. It was really hard driving. And, you know, they didn't have a flashlight, so they had to use the map. And the map was really hard to read in the dark like that. And at points, they'd have to turn on the dome light inside the car so that Toby could direct them. And then it'd completely blind Terry. He wasn't able to see a damn thing. They did it. They managed to get out of there. They got back to the gate. And they got back to the area where it was the Devil's Den State Park area. And Terry knew where they were. And he'd get them home. They were hurting badly. It was rough driving. It would have been rough feeling good driving back on that road but there were no seatbelts in the car 1977 they weren't required and Terry and Toby were being flung all over the car trying to leave that meadow area but they did they managed to get home and when he left they literally left just about everything they had with them at the campground they left behind the tent. They had DEET they'd taken from the... It was Air Force DEET. They, they had taken it along with them. In a bag, Toby left his ID. There were U.S. Air Force blankets. Basically, it was a campsite that was easily found. They didn't care. They left everything behind. They just needed to get out of there. They needed distance, distance away from that damn place. They needed drinks, and they needed to get home. And that's what they did. So home at last. Terry first dropped Toby off at his house. Then Terry arrives home, walks in the door, and Sheila obviously surprised. She doesn't see his face or his body yet. She's like, oh, you're home early. She turns around and she sees him and she's like, what the hell? Because, you know, he's almost unrecognizable. He's got bug bites head to toe and he's, his face is swollen. His eyes are almost swollen shut. He looks terrible. He's almost unrecognizable. He starts downing lemonade after lemonade. And he has a temperature of 104 degrees. She decides there and then he has to go to the hospital. Toby had already gotten to the hospital too, but they didn't know this at the time. And <clears throat> the doctors at the hospital knew both Toby and Terry. They're like, what happened to you guys? And what were they going to say? They saw this triangle in the sky. It landed. There were these little creatures crawling around and hey, we got taken up into a spaceship. They didn't know that at this time, though. But they did see little alien guys in the meadow. They didn't know what happened to them. They were just extremely sick. It was determined that they were acutely ill. They were acutely ill. They had been treated for dehydration. They both had welder's burns on their eyes. How the heck did that happen? And Terry recalls them bringing out a Geiger counter and he heard the clicks and knew what that meant. It was scary to think that he might have been exposed to radiation on base, but even scarier to think might have happened in a field in Arkansas with a spaceship above him. Now at this point, because it was unknown how they, they didn't really, they didn't say anything. They didn't say how this happened, but the OSI, which is the Office of Special Investigation. It's an Air Force division, very similar to NCIS. OSI people arrived and they interrogated Toby and they interrogated Terry. And they wanted to know, Terry, where are the pictures you took? Well, you know, Terry had left his camera at home. He didn't take pictures. But for some reason, they were extremely interested in his photographs. 
What happened was that the camp had been found by rangers, and because they left everything behind, it was really pretty easy to figure out who had been there. And uh, especially because Toby left his ID in a bag, and it traced right back to them. And they were, um, they were in a lot of trouble. They had trespassed in federal lands. And they, the uppers in the Air Force decided that those two would be separated. Toby was immediately reassigned to an air base in Japan. And he would ship out immediately. And then they were told they would they were to have absolutely no contact with each other. None. That was a direct order. They, just, they were to stay away from each other. No notes, no letters, no talking through their wives. As a matter of fact, the wives weren't even allowed to talk to each other. It was that serious. They were in a lot of trouble. And Terry didn't know why, you know. They did trespass. So what? It was just game lands, right? Toby was reassigned as well. He was taken off the amb ambulance. He was put into a supportive, a support unit where he actually spent his days painting plywood. Was, that was what was best for him, I guess. Terry has to say goodbye. He knows that they're leaving. Toby and Tammy are leaving. And he stops at the house while Toby is moving. He's packing up things and the moving van's outside and Terry stops there. Because he just has to. He has to say goodbye. He has to say goodbye to his friend. And when Terry sees Toby, Toby's a wreck. He'd been drinking. He was disheveled. He was a mess. And Terry says, they really did take us, didn't they, Terry? And Terry's like, they did, my brother. You aren't imagining it. It was real. It happened. That was basically all what their meeting was. But the military police were there. And they knew that Terry had broken the direct order. And OSI officers contacted Terry and told him that he could be court-martialed. Because he defied a direct order and they weren't happy. He was in a lot of trouble. So the next few months, Terry spent painting plywood. And at one point, the OSI brought him in, put him in a cell and gave him a drug that mellowed him out and kind of opened him up. And then a hypnotherapist was brought in, Brad, and they hypnotized Terry to find out what happened at Devil's Den. Because all Terry and Toby would say was, you know, they saw these three stars. And they didn't know what they were. And they approached, you know, they, they didn't really say much more. They saw three bright stars. And the OSI people wanted to know what they saw. So they hypnotized Terry. And they got the story. They had been taken from the tents. They were brought up into the spaceship. And it was huge. It was a huge spaceship. And there were hundreds of other people there besides Toby and Terry. And everybody was waiting a turn on an exam table. And there were screams of terror and pain all around them. They were all given a turn on this exam table where they were experimented on. And they were hurt terribly. There were metal tools that hung above the table that would come down off the ceiling. And the aliens would use them to cut open and insert things and do things to them that were horrific and painful. And Terry and Toby survived the orde ordeal. Terry wasn't sure that the others, he didn't know the unknown faces, but there were hundreds of other people there on the ship with them. He wasn't sure that they actually got to return home. So Terry felt that they were the lucky ones because they were returned to the tent. They, they managed to live. The OSI officer said they wanted ter Terry's pictures. You know, they didn't believe that he didn't have pictures. So they conducted a, a search on Terry's house and the car. 
And then they brought Terry in, put him in a cell, gave him a shot of something, ran some fluids in him, and then they hypnotized him. And they interrogated him under hypnosis about what happened at Devil's Den. Terry thought that the OSI agents were actually very familiar with the aliens, that they knew about them. They knew about the government involvement with them. They seemed to know things about these aliens, and they kind of, they already knew what happened to Terry and Toby before the session. They just wanted to hear it in their words. It wasn't really about the photographs, although had Terry had photographs of the spacecraft, they defi definitely wanted the photos. But it was more about the information that Terry and Toby held, and they tapped them for the information. Eventually, everything was just dropped after the hypnosis session. He wasn't court-martialed. He went on to serve. He went back to the ambulance, although then he worked day shift. And Toby was transferred, and he did not hear again from Toby ever. He did find out some information about Toby, but it was sad. What he found out was sad. Toby didn't have the life that Terry ended up having. Terry was actually really lucky. He managed. Toby drank heavily after this incident. He became an alcoholic. He ended up leaving the Air Force. His wife divorced him. And Toby died homeless on the streets of Flint, Michigan. He never went to college. He never became the astronomer he had hoped to be. And Terry directly blames this encounter at Devil's Den for Toby's death, although it happened years later, because Toby was just broken. He was mentally broken after this incident. He was never the same. And Terry considers himself very lucky because he managed to have a life, the life he wanted, despite what happened. That's the story of what happened at the incident at Devil's Den. I think this is a really good story. I like the way it's written. I actually, I like the way that it's written. If you read some of the stories by um, experiencers, they're not that well written. And I don't know who their editors are. And I don't know who does the proofreading, if anybody. But my goodness. In this incident, though, in this case with Terry's book, it's actually well written. Kudos to you, Terry, for that because I enjoyed reading it. I enjoy punctu punctuation and commas, little things like that. So it was a good read. If you are interested, I highly recommend this book because even though this is quite a long podcast today with this story, I have left out so many details because you just can't. Like, this would be a whole season. If you ever listen to any of Terry's interviews, they go on for a long time. They're usually two-parters because the story is just so entailed. Get the book. Read the book. There's a lot of details. There's so many things that are not covered here that are really interesting. You can get the book on Amazon. And I would imagine it's at most of the bookstores online, so it's pretty easy to get. It was published by Terry Love, Terry J. Lovelace. I don't know if maybe on his website if he would have um, a link to the books that could possibly be. Terry actually has wrote another book called Devil's Den: The Reckoning, and we'll do a story on that soon too because it's it's another. It's really well written. Same thing, a lot of interesting things. And again. It is also Incident at Devil's Den, a true story by Terry Lovelace, is available on audiobook. So if you're an audiophile out there, get it. It's really a good story. It's told in Terry's own words, literally in Terry's own words. He is the narrator, and he does a good job. I just recommend this story. It's well done. And I think for today, this is all. If you would happen to have any kind of story like this, if there's something that happened to you that's similar to what happened to Terry and Toby, 
you know you can reach me. Would love to hear a story. You can get you can reach me at PD at Petrifaction at protonmail.com. And again, for today, this is really all the time that we have. Hope you enjoyed the story. I think it's a great one. Peace out, friends. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.